Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and on this show, we talk about how complicated the world of healthcare and health IT is. And so each one of our guests brings a piece of the 30,000-piece puzzle because it's that big and that complicated. And I am so thrilled that today I'm in a special location with a very special human, and I will give her a moment to introduce herself. Yeah, welcome to the Humphreys Building. You are at Health and Human Services. I feel like I'm made it. <laughs> I don't know if I I don't know if I would call a government like bureaucracy building making it. But yeah, we're we're sitting in Health and Human Services today as part of your tour. Yeah, I was looking across the street at the Capitol building and I'm like, yeah. okay, so much of the conversations that I have essentially start I think in this building or yeah, from people within in this, this building. building. Somebody down the hallway or yeah. down a few flights of stairs. So I'm Andrea Fletcher. I'm the Chief Digital Strategy Officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, known as CMS. I also lead the digital service team at CMS. So we're an agency team of the U.S. Digital Services at the White House. We basically solve really sticky problems in government technology, which is pretty cool. Okay, so... I want to start by asking a little bit about your journey and how you mm-hmm. got here. But yeah. I also want to address that this is the first position of its kind. Yes, <laughs> I am the first person in this role ever. Yes. So I want to like, I want you to help explain what the role is. And then I don't know which we should go first of what the role is and then how you got there or. Yeah, uh, I, I can talk a little bit about the role. So over the past two years, since 2021, we've really been establishing an agency digital service team. I, I think CMS is so large and has so much technology that really kind of having us they call us a SWAT team or an unstick it team, a, a group of people who have technology skill sets, mostly coming in from the private sector. So everybody's on a, a four-year tour of service or up to four years. So they, they come in knowing nothing about government, sometimes nothing about healthcare. They all have a technology background, at least. They get up to speed on things on our team and they help different parts of CMS who are struggling, whether they're writing policy and they're trying to understand how that policy affects healthcare payers and providers and the technology they use, 
So we will send user researchers out to talk to electronic health record com- companies and get demos of how people are pulling software or talk to hospitals, talk to providers. And then we also do public facing stuff. So we do a lot of work around cleaning up a website or cleaning up a form or a process. Uh, right now we've been looking a lot at how people complain about something in the healthcare system. Oh, I'm sure that's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 not fun whenever you get sent to a government website that looks like a government website and told you're told to download a PDF that is only available in English and is not accessible for people who have visual or cognitive disabilities and you know, it's a challenge for the American people who are just trying to get something or prevent something bad from happening for, for someone else in the future. And so a lot of the work that we end up do is doing is just supporting other components or other offices who are thinking through something and they might not have the technology skill sets to really dive into it or the time. Often people don't have the time. They're busy with 15 other things. <laughs> and they're like, hey, we could just use a little extra help. And so that's where our team comes in. So um, I was in a conversation or I was witnessing a conversation at a conference yesterday and they were talking about how the government has typically had a team of people who create the policy and then a whole separate team of people who implement the policy. Yep. It's very divided. And is, are you the connector or the bridge sometimes, between that? Okay. Sometimes we are. A lot of times we're more on the implementation side. If we're lucky, we get brought in on the policy side early before somebody writes something into a poli- a rule. The rulemaking process is very complicated. <laughs> but before somebody writes something into a rule that that is actually really tricky to to implement, particularly around collecting data. That's one where we get brought in quite often of how do we collect this information in a way that doesn't add burden onto particularly providers and payers in our, in our case. And can we help design a better way of doing that? So okay. sometimes policy, mostly implementation. Now I have other questions. So it's mostly provider and payers. What about patients? Are you involved at all in patient education? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have millions of beneficiaries. CMS touches about half of the U.S. population indirectly benefiting from health insurance programs or social service programs. So Medicaid, for example, is somewhere around 88 million. Medicare, I think we're roughly at 64 million right now. That's increasing daily. And then also the marketplace or healthcare.gov, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, choose your phrase for it. And two of those have two of the largest websites in the federal government. So we own Medicare.gov, which gets millions of visitors a day, and Healthcare.gov, which also gets millions of visitors a day. Are you involved at all in HealthIT.gov or no? That's the Office of the National IT Coordinator. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's a part of HHS. So we're also a part of HHS. We also have a huge building up in in Woodlawn, Baltimore. So we, most of our staff are actually uh, north of us. I need to talk to all of you. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Government's cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, you guys get involved in so much and it also is varied state by state. So how you keep track of all of that is mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. And we all have to coordinate with each other and sometimes we don't very well. <laughs> and and we have to try to make rules and be fair and then enforce those rules and also provide you know, health insurance and process, like Medicare is a huge claims processor. So we're a payer in all of this as well. Yeah, no small feat. <laughs> it is no small feat. There's so a lot going on. Tell me some about some of the projects that you're currently working on mm-hmm. and that you're excited about. Some of the stuff that we're currently working on, we have been working on for five years, modernizing the Medicare payment systems. Big deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's 
I think the last time I looked, it's about $750 million a year are spent on those systems. Wow. So these are huge systems. They cost a lot of money. It also provides what roughly 20% of payments in the healthcare sector. Some, I, I don't know. I don't actually know the number on that. So it's maybe scratch that too, Marco. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of money. It's billions of dollars. The number that I've always kind of referenced is 4.5% of the US GDP passes through Medicare payment systems okay. every year. So it's a big one. So it's the back end systems that you're working on updating. Yeah. They, I mean, the law was enacted in 1963, and that's when we got A and B. And over the decades since, we have added other parts to Medicare. Part C, most people are familiar, familiar with Medicare Advantage. Part D, which provides people prescription drugs. And each of those has their own processes that have to occur. And all of this has been built by federal government contractors <laughs> over decades. We have mainframes. We have COBOL. We have all kinds of legacy systems and patches to the systems and the policy that goes into all of this. We have the Medicare administrative contractors, which are billion-dollar contractors who process claims for providers. So it is a it is a behemoth of a system. So what does success look like for you in terms of updating <laughs> all of that? That is a great question. <laughs> I wish I had an awesome answer. <laughs> not it, All of it not crashing down on our heads while we're trying to do it. You know, we talk about a lot, the way that we often talk about it is that it's not necessarily the technology because COBOL and mainframes are efficient and were great technology when they were implemented. It's the business processes. So making sure that we are reworking and reconfiguring our business processes as we're building, you know, new tools in the cloud or, you know, translating COBOL to Java is not a good solution if the COBOL to like if the COBOL was poorly written and you translated into poorly written Java. Right. You have not solved your root problems. And these systems are incredibly complex. Like I have never met anyone who has them all in their head at once. Even a map of them. I need to put one on our wall. We need some good office art of a map of all of the systems. It's it's they're like mind-bogglingly complex, right? And the policy builds on top of the systems and, you know. Okay, so what kind of background do you have in order to manage yeah, all of that? That's a great question because I'm not a computer scientist. Okay. I don't have... I don't have a traditional IT education. My background is in public health. So I did an undergraduate degree in, in biology and philosophy. And I loved bioethics when I was younger. I still love bioethics. Sounds like, fascinating. Yeah. Like, should we be doing this thing that right. we're going to do? <laughs> um, <laughs> is it just, is it equitable? All of those kind of cool concepts. And then I did a master's in public health. So I have a master's in public health in global health, which is very different than most people in this building, honestly. Mm -hmm. And then most people here are policymakers. They have policy backgrounds. And then I accidentally went to work for a startup. <laughs> you know, didn't realize that it was a bunch of engineers, <laughs> but it ended up being a really great choice because I learned how to build software, yeah. building software. Yeah. So I went, I worked for a company called Damagi. In out of the MIT Media Lab in Boston. They sent me all over Africa. I spent almost a decade there and then at another firm called Cooper Smith providing technical assistance to other governments. So really working internationally on how other countries build out their health IT systems. Okay, what, what are you learning that? I mean, you've learned so much. Can <laughs> there's you There's so much. Yeah. There's so much. It's really interesting to me because, you know, especially low resource countries or low income countries in sub-Saharan Africa, they've gone open source 
very, very quickly, almost immediately built everything on. Because they're able to hopscotch. They're right? able to hopscotch. They're not dealing with COBOL and yeah. PDFs. <laughs> they don't have to update old <laughs> legacy systems. They can just start with new systems. Yeah, yeah. In some cases, the legacy system is, you know, a server under someone's desk and a new system is cheaper to build anyway. And they're able to build them user-friendly. They're building them in national healthcare systems. So rolling out to every clinic in the country or every district in the country is is quite easy for them. Whereas for us, it's very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm learning a lot about how states and the federal government, like how federalism works. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not as easy to push things out to everyone. It's not as easy to get something into every hospital or clinic in the country. Whereas in a national healthcare system, it's very different. Right. I live in Mexico. So oh, it, cool. it is slightly different there too. And, and very close to the border, but I get to see both sides of yeah. the border and how they, I mean, I'm still learning a lot, but I'd be interested to compare notes on African, you know, what they there's do in Africa. There's so much that we can learn from what other countries yeah. do in this space. And there's so much that they learn from us as well. But that's one of the things that's been really fascinating to me throughout my career is like how similar all of this is. Like we're all trying to solve the same problem, the same use case. We're trying to deliver people healthcare services. Like at the end of the day, that's that's what everyone's trying to do. And how we solve that problem, we go about it in different ways. Absolutely. I think about health equity and you're like, Mm -hmm. okay, what does that, it's not just what does that mean in theory, but in practice and how do we make that happen? And especially in the light of so much new technology coming, I like to think of like, it's amazing how technology has enabled us to do so much. And yet there are still so many people that don't have access to it. And how do we make sure that they get the care that they need? Yeah. I think about this a lot with telemedicine, which telemedicine, if you are have mobility issues, can be incredible. Like that is a huge advantage now to getting better access to healthcare. If you can't, you know, it's difficult for you to leave your home. But if you live in a rural area, telemedicine might not be great because mm. of connectivity issues. Right. It's a, it's, I've been thinking for some reason, I've been thinking a lot about telemedicine lately, (laughs) mostly also because I get asked questions about it. (laughs) Well, it's important. I was, I mean, I've been in conversations around the maternal health crisis and thinking Mm -hmm. about maternal health deserts and where people don't have access to care and how do we support them? And that's not an easy answer. Uh, There's a lot of people that talk about what they are doing and then we're like, okay, but similarly to conversations around like, who's at the table and contributing their opinion, but who's not at the table and who, what conversations are missing. Yeah. And that's hard to keep it in the forefront of your mind in general. So I imagine that's a difficult thing to do in your position. <laughs> well, and technology isn't always the answer or the only right. answer. In fact, sometimes it can make things worse. I, I spent a lot of time building apps for health for frontline healthcare workers particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And that was a really interesting thing to work on because it taught me, one, the value of talking to users. Just you know, put it in front of people's faces early and often. And that an app on a broken process is now a broken app. There you go. So all you've done is put an app on top of something and it's still broken. And so you have to go back to the service design and the service delivery and and understanding, you know, your processes. And in government, this gets really interesting on the implementation side because the processes were not always designed. They were designed by 
you know, years of policy being thrown on top of each other. Right, of course. (laughs) And a lot of times the policymakers aren't really understanding how that Mm -hmm. affects the people that have to implement it. No, because how we talk to people is through comments on, you know, the Federal Register and requests for information. And And that's not a really, like, normal way to talk to people or, like, Not if you're building technology. No technologist would ever build a piece of technology that way. Right. You know, they would write a user story and they would talk to users. So it's this total... Almost like like heads butting against each other in the way of how a technologist does things versus how a policymaker does things, and it's it's interesting to kind of that's why when you ask like are you policy side or implementation, I'm like sometimes both, sometimes like in conflict with each other. Sure, <laughs> but you if know. you're coming in as sort of a new way of doing things or possibly mm-hmm. bringing change, how? receptive are people to that some are not i will be honest like you know it's the bureaucracy yeah uh, bureaucracies like to do things the way that they've always been done yeah because you know and people will say to me like i don't want to go to jail right like <laughs> me neither me neither who does who does <laughs> yeah but you know the way that is it has always been done and and bureaucracies are are kind of built in a way to protect yourself, right? Protect yourself from being called in front of Congress to talk to people, mm-hmm. protect yourself from litigation from, I mean, we get sued by all kinds of people all the time, right? And that's, if you do it the way that it has been done and the way that it, and you follow the rules, like you will protect yourself, you will protect the agency, right? That is not a great way to transform the healthcare system and to do digital transformation. <laughs> well, that's the <laughs> thing. Your things. title is part of the digital transformation. Yeah, it's, just a, like... it's a big phrase. Uh, <laughs> let's not, digital strategy and digital transformation and modernization. There's some there's some hopeful thinking in that. Yeah. So how long have you been at this? <laughs> like two months. Okay. I, a year on the digital service team and about two months in this role now. And are you only allowed to have the four years or are you allowed to have more? Did you? So I'm career service now. Okay. I have flipped over. <laughs> But most of my team is still on a tour of service. Some of them will stay at CMS. Some of them will stay at HHS. Some of them will decide to go back to the private sector. And I love the tour of service model. I I think everyone in the country should serve at some point in, in whatever capacity they can. And there's an amazing component here of like people taking time out of their job at a big tech company to come help solve healthcare. But it kind of sounds like the Peace Corps, but some sort of. Yeah, but for like high level techies. How does somebody get involved in that? Because I've never even heard of it. You can apply online. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we recruit, we take applications. The federal government, I think, is in general is going through a bit of a a movement or a revolution around hiring in technologists and what does it look like to have technologists at the table when policy is being made and when implementation and operations are having conversations because so much of what we do involves technology in some way, shape or form. So we've got, you know, everything from coding it forward interns on our team who are in school have technology backgrounds. We've got product managers, designers, engineers coming from from coding it forward. We then have digital core fellows who are within two years out of their degree program. So undergrad or master's or PhDs. We've had PhDs come through that program as well. And they are, or doctoral degrees, they are on a pathways program. So they're on a they come in and they rise up quickly 
basically is, is, is how a pathways program works in the government. But early career technologists is what we call them. And so you don't necessarily have to have a computer science background. No. Okay. I know you can have a design background. We need designers of all shapes and colors. Heck yeah, we do. Yeah, we need people who can write good content. We need people who can do user experience and user research design because nobody likes a terrible government form. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and HHS, it's not just HHS, it's CDC and NIH and FDA and all these other parts of HHS that also need people. Wow. Okay, so... Can we just take a minute to mm-hmm. share how people would find that information? Because I really am interested in like, how do we lead people to come be part yeah. of the solution? Yeah, come solve problems. Yeah, because there's a lot some, of problems. We got some solve. big problems over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can go to those programs. You can come to our website, digital, I think we're cms.gov slash digital services. Okay. The U.S. Digital Service also takes applications. There's several different nonprofits in the space as well. So the tech to gov partnership. If you don't want to leave your current job, you can volunteer with the US Digital Response or uh, Code for America is another group that works with mostly at state and local levels. There's a whole civic tech community out here. You're blowing my mind. I didn't really? yeah, I honestly didn't know all of this. And I yeah. feel like I like talk to a lot of people. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and no one's talked to you about like the civic tech community no. and how awesome we are no. and how we're like trying to fix problems. <laughs> no, I mean, I like it's just sort of like this big conglomerate of the government and then you get access to them at different conferences or whatnot, but no one's broken it down in this level of detail. Oh, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, yeah. there's actually a track of like, oh. Yeah, depending on where you're at in your career and what you're interested in. I mean, there's, you probably got to do a little bit of research. Of course. There's some people, com- you know, pulling information together on, you know, how you apply to these different programs. And I, my, my advice is always to apply to many things. Sure. Because you might not get what you, your top choice, but you might get your second choice. And, you know. and you're still going to be doing a lot of good. Yeah. And, you know, I came in through the U.S. Digital Service, which is, it's, high level technologist. I honestly, if I'm being honest, I did not think I would get in. I remember applying and being like, eh, I'll throw out an application here. And I threw out applications to other parts of the government, government as well. And it happened to be during COVID-19 and they were looking for people who had backgrounds in technology and public health, which I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm not a computer scientist. You know, I'm a product manager or, you know, I manage stakeholders a lot of the time is what I feel like. But a lot of times it's probably important to be able to see the big picture and yeah. you don't need to know the details of every single thing, but you want to be able to, I'm sure, direct a group to go in the right direction. Yeah. Direct a group to go in the right direction. I feel like I often am like a translator of languages, uh-huh. right? There's government speak. We have a lot of acronyms. Tons. So many <laughs> Um, (laughs) And learning, you know, which laws and which rules you have to follow. Like this is a hard and fast rule and where you have wiggle room in those laws and rules and how you can navigate through the bureaucracy. What, how do you get people to yes in the government? What do they need to feel comfortable? And then, so there's government speak, there's technology speak. Tons Uh, of acronyms there too. Tons of acronyms, tons of weird things. You know, we were talking about artificial intelligence the other days and and llamas and, you know, just the nonsense. Or I I think I said the phrase, we have to put the Python on GitHub, right? (laughs) And then I I thought for a second how absurd that statement says. (laughs) If you are not a technologist and you don't know what Python and GitHub are, right? like, 
What? Like, I'm lost. What language are you speaking? Yeah, yeah. And so you have to step back, you know, 10 steps and explain to someone what GitHub is and why it's important and why we're using, you know, and, and so it's a different language than government. And then the third language is healthcare, which is also filled Massive. with acronyms yeah. and Latin and weird language, you know, weird. Yeah. So, okay. So you're working on the federal level. Are there mm-hmm. any initiatives or projects or within particular states or regions that you're really excited about? And I mean, I'm ex- I get excited about Medicaid in general. Oh my gosh. Tell me. I don't think a lot of people get excited about Medicaid, but I do. I think there's huge potential in the Medicaid system. Okay. But I always think that there's huge potential and then I get sad that people aren't using it to its potential. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair criticism. <laughs> I think there's a potential, and, and this comes from my experience abroad and how we built systems across multiple countries and, and multiple you know districts or states within a country at a subnational level, and really thinking about the architecture of that and how you build once and use many, because mm-hmm. I don't think we're doing that mm-hmm. right now necessarily in, in Medicaid and state systems in particular, and how we adopt a reuse recycle model that benefits states and benefits that maybe decreases the cost of systems because we have incredibly expensive systems yep. and improves the usability and improves the data quality and really just start to reimagine. I think the public health emergency is a great opportunity to look at the state systems and look at how we interact between states and the federal government and reimagine a world that's different because they've seen this different world and it's pretty cool like it's pretty exciting but are there are there i don't want to call any state out for being (laughs) special or not special but like are there any that you think that would be a great model yeah i mean since you since you haven't been in the civic tech space there's there's state digital service teams too so we have the colorado digital service we have code pa who just stood up and they're kind of our counterparts in, in taking a look and digging into some of these systems there's cities that have been doing great work. The city of Baltimore, the city of Philadelphia have digital service teams. Colorado's kind of always, or sorry, Colorado's always been a little ahead of the game. California's always been a little bit ahead of the game. The, New Jersey has an office of innovation that's that's pretty forward leaning. There are some teams out there that are really rethinking, especially coming out of the public health emergency and COVID-19. How do we do this differently? Now for the folks that are on the other side of that mm-hmm. coin, how do we pull them up faster. <laughs> the ones that aren't? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I will always talk about hiring always because the, the talent is the hardest part. Convincing people that they might have to take a little pay cut in order to come into government service. Okay. Or we don't pay as much, I'll be honest, yeah. as the private sector, but the impact is so large that you can change millions of people's lives with the code that you write. That's if pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And so getting like getting talent into states to help them make decisions on the software that they're buying and building in government, we buy a lot of software, but you want to have people who understand what they're buying, you know, as a good purchaser. And that's not always, that's not always the case in the federal government. And it's not always the case at the state level either. We call it procurement. So how we procure software Uh and in a waterfall world, what typically happens is they write the requirements for the software and then it goes to the procurement process. And by the time it actually gets procured, it's two years later, right? We, right. we purchase the software two years later. And then by the time it gets implemented, it's three years later. So we are trying to buy software for five years in the future. That's why it doesn't always work out in our That's favor. That's got to be one of the hardest things to manage, especially at the pace of change of technology these days. Yes, exactly. 
So if we wanted to buy AI stuff, we should have bought it five yeah, years exactly. ago. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And have the budget pulled together years ago. And and so... Well, you should just be a fortune teller then. Or if, basically, yeah. yeah. Or you have to restructure the way that you buy software. You have to rethink how you do that, how that process works. You have to do it in a more agile and iterative way, which is not how government does And things. also a question <laughs> about like a startups, because that's such an investment in the future that if for mm-hmm. companies that are new and just getting started, you kind of have to guarantee that they're still going to be around five years from now to implement. Yeah. And, and it takes a-, a team of people to respond to a government contract, which is why yeah. you know, somebody will say, well, why didn't you hire this brand new, innovative, awesome company? And we're like, because they don't have somebody who can respond to our right. request for proposals. <laughs> like, which is a huge, yeah, it's, it's a huge it's burden. It's a lift. Consuming. Yeah, it's a big lift. It's lucrative if you can do it, but that's why you end up with with companies and organizations who can do government contracting. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a whole group of people out there who are working on how do we do government contracting differently? How do we bring new companies and organizations into the government contracting arena? So that way we, we have firms who can can do agile development and user research. And, you know, because when we're doing user research for Medicare.gov, it's massive user yeah, research. Yeah, of course. It takes a whole firm. <laughs> <laughs> we want all your whole team eight yeah. hours a day or more for a year. Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a multi-million dollar effort to make sure that a website like Medicare.gov or Healthcare.gov is user-friendly mm-hmm. and accessible and makes sense to a human. I've paid a lot of attention to Physician Compare or Compare.gov yeah. and that's changed significantly just yep. even over the last few years and it's been interesting to see how it gets consolidated and you know trying to be more <laughs> user-friendly so lay people can understand yeah. quality like quality measures and you know how all of that gets displayed yeah Uh, it's fascinating there's a whole team of people behind that of course of course there's (laughs) multiple teams so for people who might be interested in getting jobs within government okay fine you might have to take a pay cut but it also sounds like you'd be pretty well set up for a future after if you wanted to move from government to the back to the private sector yeah i think you learn a lot being in the on the government side about how policy implementation works, like really niche parts of healthcare technology. Yeah. Uh, Fire FHIR. Yeah. (laughs) Like we deal with it a lot and X12. So like standards, how payment systems work. Like if you're working on the Medicare payment systems, how claims processing works. Like that is a very niche understanding. I've been having a conversation about the US CDI standards and how that new update has been coming along and it's specifically on the SOGI, so sexual orientation and gender identity data and it's just connected to health equity in the sense of how can we provide access to folks or serve different communities if we're not collecting data about them in Mm -hmm. certain ways. Does that come across your table or desk? It does sometimes. I mean, we collect so much data. I bet. At CMS. I, I would argue that we have some of the largest healthcare data sets in the world. Right. I mean, we have all of the Medicare data, claims data. We have an entire office of Minority Health who looks at SOGI data and other data collection for health equity. This is not my expertise, but we do have a lot of data and we collect a lot of data and then we publish a lot of data as well. We are a processor of data. That is a huge thing that we do as an, as an agency. And so, yeah, how we, how we as the government collect information yeah. is incredibly important and how we, what standards we use, 
how we collect data from the states and providers. And, and also making sure the technology is capable of collecting the same data. Bingo. That's, yeah. Because not everybody uses the same EHRs. No, that's right. <laughs> Some yeah. don't have EHRs, right? And yeah. Yeah. So we're dealing with different types of data collection from different people, from different entities. Yeah. It's massive. Everything. All of it. It's no small feet what you are doing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. The government, I am probably about once a week, my mind is blown on something that the US government does that I didn't think about. Tell me about the last HHS. time. I want, can you remember the last? You know, it was interesting. I was reading an article about Maui, actually, about what the disaster there and HHS deals a lot with disaster response. And I thought, oh, well, FEMA's handling a lot of that. But no, did you know that we have mobile mortuary units what? that HHS deploys? that have forensic scientists and morticians because when different areas become overwhelmed with a disaster, they need support not just on the healthcare side, but also on dealing with mass casualties. And I thought about that for a second of like how incredible it is that that is a thing that we like that exists because those communities need that I mean, it's a terrible thing to need support for, but they need additional support and that we have this like team and apparatus that deploys. And I was like, oh, that's health and human services, Mm -hmm. not... Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So what else have you learned from your own department? Because that's pretty incredible too. (sighs) CMS does so much, so much. Yeah. The Center for Clinical Standards and Quality is one that I don't think many people know about. So they're responsible for healthcare quality. They're responsible when something bad happens in the healthcare sector. So if somebody shows up in an emergency room and they're denied care, you know, they can make a complaint and that gets processed through CMS. If somebody, you know, has a nursing home, they're in a nursing home and their care is not proper, that's a CMS. CMS gets that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think about the relief that we give people that somebody is there to to hear, like to listen to them and to try to make sure that this doesn't happen to someone else and try to prevent these things from happening to people. Because as much as we all want healthcare to be perfect every time we go into a facility, it's it's not. The reality of the situation is some people do have terrible experiences in the healthcare sector. And I always enjoy talking to them just about like how complex and complicated that work is because you also have businesses, right? You have hospitals, you have providers of all different sorts. You have laboratories, you have payers, insurance companies, and we need all of these things for our healthcare system to run. But we also need to trust that they are providing care that is appropriate and, you know, the highest quality care that's available. And somebody has to, you know, make sure that's happening. And so that's where CMS comes in. So I have, okay, perhaps my last question, but maybe not. We'll see. Is thinking about, and I track some, I track quality measures big mm-hmm. time. And I'm like thinking about gaps in care, what it is that we're measuring to, so that because we say that it matters, does CMS or HHS ever actually be the originators and generators of those quality measures? Or are you waiting for the public or an organization to like <sighs> oh, introduce to research those to, you? to understand this? That's it. It's a big question, kind of. Yeah, I don't know enough about it. See, this is the other problem. It's like, that's such a deep expertise area that I'm like, <laughs> I got to call up somebody who's an ex- subject matter expert in that. We do do like we do do investigations. So if somebody submits a complaint, CMS will do investigations. Yeah. 
that's kind of what I was thinking about earlier is like our investigation processes and how we go about responding to, you know, it was in the Theranos doc, the Theranos oh. documentary or. Oh yeah. Theranos. The Theranos. Theranos. The Theranos movie about or mini series. It was CMS. They made a complaint to CMS and CMS investigated okay. the laboratory for quality standards. So the reason I'm asking the question is because kind of chiming back to the maternal health crisis that I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, tracking quality measures. Those are typically based on Medicare population, but maternal health isn't really in the yeah. Medicare. Yeah, it's all Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And so that's the part. I'm like, okay, well, we have to solve for that, but it is so freaking hard because it's not driven by Medicare, which is the biggest driver of healthcare, healthcare quality, quality. Healthcare delivery, but it's a everything. very specific population, right? And yeah. then you're like, okay, well then we're missing a whole lot. So how do we close those gaps? And I don't expect you to have the answer to that. I wish I, I wish I had the answer. To, <laughs> I wish I had the answer to everything on this. Yeah. I mean, to go back a little bit on like things that I am just like surprised by that, that we do. I mean, just the fact that somebody is looking at this data and the fact that somebody is collecting this data doesn't always happen everywhere in the world either. That is a huge benefit of like the work that is done in our government is that we are, we are collecting and we are looking at there are gaps in this data. Just knowing that is right. key to addressing it. And that doesn't always happen everywhere in the world because they don't have the systems and technology in place. Well, I think a lot of times it's easy to think about what's right in front of you or whoever's mm-hmm. perspective is here at the table. But one of the hardest things to grapple with is who's not who's here not. and how do you measure a negative? I was, there's a fun analogy about like, if say Superman saved the world from whatever, like a meteor, right? Mm-hmm. You're just like, well, how would you measure the damage that wasn't done? Even. <laughs> Cost avoidance is what we yeah. call the government. We did not spend yeah. money. <laughs> it's a real thing. Nobody cares about the money that you didn't spend. Right. And you're like, we that's a that's a huge but like it's a massive benefit to be able to say, yeah. Well, look how much I saved you. But it's hard if you didn't have to spend that money or recover yeah. from a well, huge we emergency. Spend this yeah. money. We do this thing. <laughs> hard to track that. We saved somebody from a terrible technical decision. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, can you I imagine you might be hard to you're probably not hard to find, but maybe No, I'm on you, LinkedIn. Okay. I have an email address. <laughs> There's like a bio about me online. Somewhere. Are you I I found it. Are okay. you allowed to be on social media and connect in that way or no? Yeah. I could be. I don't really. Like, I'm pretty busy. much just on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm also not good at it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've basically succumbed to the fact I'm never going to be an influencer. That's so. fair. That's fair. Well, I would love to bring more attention to the work that you do. And just I'm happy to have had this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah. For- let's get more people from the government and civic tech. Yeah. Like, you know, out there in the world talking about what we do. We need to know more about what you guys are doing and really just like say thank you because you're doing the (laughs) hard work. (laughs) (laughs) I really love it. I feel like I have found like where I belong in life in terms of, you know, it's funny because I spent so much of my career abroad and moving to the domestic side of things has been just, I've learned so much. I bet. And it has been a really interesting experience of like looking how the U.S., like seeing how the U.S. government functions and comparing that to previous experiences and how our healthcare system functions and how we like how we collect information and data and build systems. And it is there's so much good work to be done. And there are so many incredible people in the federal government 
who are just doing their jobs every day. And by doing that, like millions of people get benefit. <laughs> yeah. Benefit. Yes. Yeah. I always think like there's no shortage of work to be done. And anytime you think like you might be like, nope, we've got a lot to do. And yeah, we're a roll up your sleeves and just get work done kind of team, which is kind of fun to be on because, you know, we we're often just like, all right, somebody's got to go write that code or yeah, well, build that form. I am wishing you all of the luck in the world in the digital transformation. <laughs> I'm going to need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are glad that you are leading the charge and um, hope to send more people your way to support the good yeah, work that you're doing. Yeah, come on in, apply. Yeah. If you're thinking, if you know, you're waiting for the call to action, this is it. This is your call to service. I love it. Well, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you for spending this time with me. This was lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're good? I'm good. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.